Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. As always for our book review podcast I'm joined by Amanda Robbie. Uh, we're here in her vicarage, there's no uh, livestock around. No, no dog uh, who is out on a walk no, no, and no teenagers. And no visiting parrot. Um, but I do apologise, I have got quite a nasty cough at the moment. I will try and not cough on microphone, but uh, that might not always work. Anyway, tell us, uh, Amanda, what we've been reading this month. We have been reading A Tender Lion, not A Tenderloin, A Tender Lion, <laughs> The Life, Ministry and Message of J.C. Ryle by Bennett W. Rogers, who, uh, from your, from the middle initial, is American, he's a Southern Baptist, he, but he's written about J.C. Ryle, English bishop. Exactly that. So uh, it's not the first biography that's been written about Ryle, but it is the most recent biography that's been written about Ryle. And I believe there is a commendation, uh, not on the front inside cover, on the back. Here we are. Uh, Bennett Wade Rogers has put us in his debt with this splendid, up-to-date intellectual biography of the great Victorian evangelical J.C. Ryle, says Lee Gatiss, director of Church Society. This is an inspiring and edifying book about someone who is extraordinarily useful to his master. So it comes quite well recommended. Yes. Um, so, Amanda, before you started reading this, what did you know about J.C. Ryle? Anything that I knew he was the first bishop of Liverpool and he'd written Holiness and Expository Thoughts on the Gospels, which I both of which I have in hard copy. Well, not hard. Yes, paper, in paper, copy. paper copy and um, have read. Uh, over the years yes absolutely so my first experience like many people's I guess was um when I was a student I read holiness and I think I've read it two or three times mm. since um and also as you say expository thoughts and I I did know slightly more than that I knew that Ryle had uh, contributed many church association tracts and um, we'll maybe come to talk about church association a little bit later in the podcast but it is one of the organizations that is a sort of forebear Uh, of what later became Church Society. So we have on the Church Society website and in our archives quite an amount of uh, Ryle's other written work uh, other than the the kind of famous books. So yeah, so I didn't know a lot either. Do we feel we've learned a lot about him from reading 300 and something pages of this biography? Yes, I think think we've learned a lot about the things that he engaged in, in his sort of clerical career. Um, Actually, the, one of the things at the beginning of the book, which is lovely, is um, there's a very good description of his conversion. And the most, the thing that delighted me, really, there were various events, um, things that happened, um, friendships and um, uh, evangelical ministries beginning. But the fifth and final event was hearing a lesson read from Ephesians 2 one Sunday morning. And um, it was basically somebody who read the Bible very effectively. The reader made some lengthy pauses when he came to verse 8. Uh, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And it was an unusual emphatic reading and he, and led to his conversion. So I, I was delighted by that thought that actually Bible reading read well can actually en- enable the Spirit or yeah. is used by the Spirit to bring that conversion about. That's a great encouragement, isn't it? If you're somebody who sometimes reads the, the Bible readings in your church to think about how you can do that uh, as well and effectively as possible, that God can use it in that kind of way. Mm. I was really interested in hearing about uh, a little bit about his family background and his hometown. Yeah. So he was from Macclesfield, which 
apparently was a great sort of hotbed of evangelicalism yes. in the in the early nineteenth century and the and in the eighteenth century, which I I did not know, uh, including Ryle's grandparents who were extremely wealthy, um, he was in a, his grandfather was extremely wealthy, silk mill owner, exactly, um, but also an evangelical and, you know, used his wealth in that kind of way. But then it's, it seems to skip a generation. So, mm. you know, the, the description of Ryle's own childhood is one of not really having any spiritual input at all. Yeah. Um, he sort of goes away to boarding school, but there's not a whole lot there even at that time. Um, you know, they're, they're not getting... Um, uh, RS lessons or religious lessons or going to church or having any of that at school either. So really quite um, uh, a sort of secular upbringing. Yeah. And it's as a student, isn't it, when he... um, becomes a Christian he sort of hears that yes that yes lesson um, and... but although he was back in Macclesfield as well and yeah. hearing things in in the churches there yeah. so yes he I mean he had this sort of privileged upbringing but northern and trade yes. so he's he's not sort of establishment when he starts he, he's sort yeah. of new money yes absolutely and he describes um uh when he's at, at Eton how he doesn't immediately fit in with everyone there and it takes him two or three years before he starts to People start to recognise that actually he's very bright, he's very good at sport, he's very good at all these kinds he of was, things. He seemed but... like a very large personality. Right at the end of the book, it describes his sort of person. I think he was tall and bulky and had quite a forceful personality mm. and a tremendous beard, with illustrated yes. on the front. Of <laughs> as, the as we book. see, I, I didn't realise, um, apparently it was his third wife who was a photographer, sort of very early uh, keen sort of amateur photographer who took the the pictures that you will recognize of Ryle um, were often taken by his wife there we go one of his wives I guess I mean, since we're talking about this now one of the things I was frustrated by in the book was the lack of what I would call biography so you mentioned I think there's a lot about his ministry and his public work mm. there's very little just the occasional snippet or scrap about his wives, of which there were several, his children, of which there were several. Often people are only introduced at the point when they die. And, then, and I didn't get much of a sense of what he was like as a person. Yes, it's, it's I mean, it, there, there are a lot, of, a lot of quite sort of lists of his, his arguments about things. And so as a person, he was obviously quite logical and thorough. Which, so you could mm. deduce those things. But actually, it, it, there, there were sort of fewer sort of... Yeah. Uh, reflections on his personality what it would have been like to sit down with Ryle um, exactly you don't get many sort of stories of his friendships or his Mm. relationships with people or um yeah as you say yeah there's nothing about his sort of his buddies who who were his mates in ministry sort of thing or yeah and I think um yeah I I found that a little bit frustrating I think it is very thorough and we'll talk about lots of the really interesting things Mm. that there are in the book but I guess I didn't feel there was much in here that you couldn't have learned just by reading Ryle's own writings. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, synthesised and brought together, but it, but there's not a lot of insight into him as, as a person, no. um, if that's what you look for in a biography, which which I sort of do a bit. Yeah, this is, in some ways, this is more sort of church history than biography, actually. It's a history of Ryle, Ryle's life, rather than a, a biography in terms of understanding him as a person. It tells you what his what he did and, 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 and how that impacted the wider church, which is fascinating, and um, we're going to talk about that. We are. So, um, one of the things uh, that I didn't know much about was what Ryle had done 
uh, in his ministry life before he gets to Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And so we're told a little bit about uh, his first parish, which is in uh, a sort of very uh, rural kind of area uh, in, I guess, what is now Hampshire. And then he's in Norfolk for a while. Um, And one of the things that I was very struck by, which I think is a theme throughout his life and, and also when he gets to Liverpool, is how committed he was to ministering to working class people um and and we see that in a number of different ways don't we so there's a whole chapter on comparing ryle's preaching with um spurgeon and john henry newman who you know of a similar uh, period in time but there's a real contrast in their styles isn't there yeah it was i mean it was fascinating although slightly sludgy to read through sort of uh an analysis of sort of rhetoric which I found a bit um difficult to get my head around but there's this wonderful table where they he um analyzes the composite the sermons or a sermon or sermons on John 11 and you know the word count of Newman was half pretty much Spurgeon and Ryle but the words per sentence Newman had 30 which is very um if you've ever done analysis of, of, of literary writing it's sort of times got a, a telegraph editorial mm. level um, Spurgeon was 24, but Ryle, only 15 words a sentence, were very tabloid mm. in, in the way that he preached. And actually, I think one of the things I've been, I've also, having remembered Ryle, I have been gone back to his um, expository thoughts on the Gospels. I've been using my devotions in the morning. And I think, um, although the writing is Victorian, what keeps it fresh and accessible now is because the sentences are so short. Victorian b- books often, the sentences go on so long, you don't know, yeah. you know, don't know where you are and you lose the plot. Whereas yeah. this was, um, he's still fresh because he he's very to the point. And it's a deliberate thing. So yeah. it, it talks about, I think, in his first parish where he goes and, and he sort of begins doing this sort of, you know, much more ornate Florid, yeah. sort of style, but realises that it's not connecting with the people that he's preaching to. And yeah. so deliberately simplifies, simplifies, simplifies. Yeah in order to be able to preach in a way that people can understand, because his primary concern is not that people think he's a great preacher, but that people hear the gospel yeah. and, and are saved. And you see that, I think, that sort of priority of actually the spiritual work yeah. um, drives everything that he does. And yeah. so, you there, know... there's. I mean, he quickly filled his church in Helmingham, and roughly 80% of the village population came to hear him preach each Sunday afternoon and then his real passion about you know founded special services of the working classes yeah um which came to St Martin's Birmingham if you know that's Martin's in the Bullring so they were um yeah very much a sort of passion for reaching people and so he does things like in all his uh, churches he works out when people can come to meetings and puts the meetings on then and you know yeah doesn't say you must come and fit in with how I'm going to do things at the church but yeah it's um the style of his preaching they call he he calls it crucified style that he sort of has uh, sort of simplified and sort of yeah yeah put to death the the style Mm. for the sake of um the lost Um, and I think as well um one of the things maybe about his passion for the poor is his family were reduced to penury his, his it's a comparative kind compared, of penury. But his father had debts that he felt they did. By, they, they were they were, they were repaying debt for twenty mm. years. However, yeah, it's not penury. They were living on his mother's dowry, okay, yes, which was course. not sent to pay the debt. And so I think they were living really relatively comfortably. Yes, but I think. But previously they'd owned a bank, so 
it's a bit like feeling sorry for the bankers in the credit crunch crisis. Yes, okay. I didn't feel that sorry for his. But I, I wondered that if that also that sort of affected his heart for the poor because he knew what it was to be in reduced circumstances. I'm sure that's true. I'm sure he had a different understanding of that than if it had not happened. Mm. But I, I don't yes. think we should think no. that his family were living in penury because no, they, no, okay. they weren't really. <laughs> um, also, his tracts ministry. So, oh, yeah. tracts were a huge thing in the 19th century. Obviously, the tractarians were, yes. were sort of um, uh, a much more uh, Anglo-Catholic kind of movement. But tracts were something that Ryle used to great effect. Yes, it, they, they were very popular, weren't they? And they were very cheap. Exactly. So, again, he's thinking about not the person who can afford to buy a nice leather-bound edition of something... But the yeah. person who can spend half a penny. Yes, and I, I think there was um, who was it? There was a, a woman's tracts which were very yes, popular. Yes, Mary something. Ha- Moore, no, Hannah Moore. Was Hannah it? Moore, that's Hannah Moore, right. But they were a bit sort of story with sort of allusion to the gospel where he decided to write these things which were much more gospel focused yes and they were sort of sent out to soldiers and they were distributed yes and 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 we got a mention of Wolverhampton in the book because George Everard vicar of St Mark's Wolverhampton discovered that Ryle's tracks were particularly useful in reaching the working classes of his large industrial parish and then they were distributed to troops during the Crimean War so yes they went out to working class people Mm. who who enjoyed reading them they were very direct they gave a very yeah. simple gospel message yeah exactly so um so it's all of those things i think make him a great choice to be the first bishop of liverpool mm. um so liverpool you know there are there are some statistics given at, at quite tedious length about the growth of liverpool and it was the, the second of the city of the and, empire wasn't yeah it, at exactly that stage? but actually because it had grown out of almost nothing mm wasn't previously a diocese, didn't have a cathedral, and the vast majority of the people who lived there were working-class people. It was, mm. um, you know, it, it really was, um, you know, full of labourers and... I mean, that some of the... People num- in slum conditions. Yeah, slums, hundreds of uh, brothels, you know, that obviously very poor. Mm. And, and, you know, obviously some people making money and, mm. and, and, and raising their lives, but others in really yeah. abject poverty. And one of the things that I think is an issue for us today with the parish system is it's quite difficult to change when geography changes, when people move, move, when towns suddenly become cities or villages mm. suddenly become towns or places empty, to get the parishes in a way that actually reflects the existing uh population yeah. is very difficult and this is one of the things that, that Ryle um, had to work out what to deal with with in Liverpool though there are some places where there's a parish but maybe there's only f- a few hundred people living there yeah. because it's become very industrialized and there's not much residential um, accommodation and then there are other places where the population has exploded and there's maybe 20,000 people in a parish and no church and, and exactly or a church that seats a hundred and yeah. um, and I think we we have that today. Oh yeah, things have changed. Nobody wants, nobody's going to move their parish church, and then you've got parish churches way outside the village, or you've got a parish church in the you know been cut off by a dual carriageway, mm. and um, or you've got yes. Yeah, so, I mean, your parish is um, has yeah, got the M five going through it. Yes, hasn't it? I mean, but and more than that, it's got an expressway which just yeah. goes through. So. But other, I've seen other parishes mm. where, you know, the church is right on the dual carriageway and it doesn't yeah. feel like at the centre of the population at all. Yeah, so. absolutely. So there's, so there's a real issue that he has to deal with. And, and he does start this kind of big 
building uh, project scheme. And one of the things that he does, and again, I think is is thinking about the working class people, mm-hmm. particularly in this, is he works out that you can build what he calls a mission hall mm-hmm. much more cheaply than you can build a church. Mm-hmm. And also with far fewer restrictions, yeah. because you can build one in someone else's parish because you're not building a new church. Mm-hmm. And also for people who might be a little bit intimidated by going into a church. And there's this whole discussion about rented pews and free pews oh. and how most of the seats in many churches you couldn't just walk you in and sit in. You had to pay to go to church. Exactly. So if you didn't have any money, you couldn't go and sit in those. It was, it was you know, and so he said, well, if we build these mission halls for, that can seat 500 people and we'll make them plain and simple and they won't be intimidating. And then when they're full, which they did get full, then they, then you build a church out of that. And mm. so he's thinking really creatively. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things um, we talked talked about earlier, wasn't it, um, before we started recording, was that he, he became to be Bishop of Liverpool, but the Church of England was really behind the curve, you know, to sort of be appointing him Bishop when there was this huge city already. Exactly. Um, and, you know, that sort of sluggishness. Yeah. Um, and often, you know, you're sort of following the dissenters in doing something, I noticed through the book. Yes, um, you often have a lot more agility to respond more quickly to um, changes, to changes yeah, yeah, than yeah. the Church so of the England. the Church Planting Network or whatever. Yeah. The Church of England is doing that now, but the other people have been doing it for far longer. Mm. One other thing, just before we move on to, to more of the broader history, I didn't know about his hymn books. Oh, yes. Which I marvelous. thought was absolutely delightful. Yeah. So he began... By putting together a hymn book of, I think it was... 30, I think, 31. Yeah, yeah, I think it started as 26, because I think hymns, maybe yes. he didn't Not include Sundays. Sundays. Yeah. But it was a hymn a day for a month, and it, was, it wasn't intended to be used by churches. It mm. was for families yes. that you would sing a hymn together every day. Yes, the comfort of individuals and the edification of Christians in private have been the two principal objects I have had in view in preparing this collection. So he's wanting people to sing a hymn at home and to do family devotions to be encouraged yeah um, um and then he goes on to expand that and he does one that's got sort of two a day and then he goes on to produce collections of hymns that that are more intended for for churches and yeah. and other use as well yeah, um, there, there were several hymn books it wasn't just like yeah. a one-off no exactly he felt it was a really important uh, thing to do and mm-hmm. And I, I'm very struck by that. I think we are in an, an age where we don't really use hymn books at all anymore. And we yep. certainly don't at my church, uh, in our main services. And we're sort of collecting hymns from all over the place. But actually the value of something that is a considered collection yeah. um, and having inbuilt repetition, so you're learning yes. and embedding those hymns in your And you have the life. words written down. So it's like learning poetry, isn't yeah. it, to have a hymn book like that. I mean, yeah. I think um, some churches have Spotify playlists, don't they? And and that can be, uh, you know, yours, you are singing the same same hymns again and again. But uh, I think the, the, 30, the, the, mm. the sort of month... I love that idea of having, yeah, yeah, one that you and that you sing as as your family together. So any musicians out there or anyone keen to do that, do, do contact yeah. Church Society. Oh, well, and I will like just say, <laughs> the other thing uh, that he was keen to do was um, include hymns that weren't commonly Usual, known yes. ones that people might not already know oh, yes. and bring them in and you know so there's sort of hymns by moody and sankey and there's you yeah, know yeah. a was... lot of female hymn writers he was very yes, yes, keen yes. to include um yeah so there may be if, if you are if you are a, a, a modern songwriter and you want to have some old words to set a new tune to 
perhaps you can yes. find a source of a, a rile track um... down one of his hymn books yeah. absolutely anyway so as you said and I, th- I think that's right it is fair to say the book is more about the history of the church of england or of evangelicals in the church of england in the 19th century yeah. and rile's role in that yeah. Um, with some other stuff about his ministry and so on, mm-hmm. but so there's a lot. There's a lot in there. Um, we mentioned earlier the Church Association. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Now the Church Association were formed in opposition to the growing movement uh, in the 19th century of the ritualists. Um, and the tra- well, the Tractarians followed by the ritualists. Tractarians yeah. followed by the ritualists, exactly. Mm. Which was the sort of um, moment at which uh, there was a real resurgence of um what we now think of as uh, anglo-catholic mm. um so those who are within the church but wanting to see a return to roman, roman catholic yeah. uh ways of doing things and ways of understanding things yeah. and obviously at the reformation that that was the great split between uh, the protestant churches and the church of england and the roman catholic church and in the 19th century there, there's this growing movement saying actually we need to go back Uh, to Rome and so Ryle and a lot of what Ryle is doing is um, opposing those changes Mm. that are beginning to happen um, through the work of the ritualists and the Tractarians. Now what was the church association's approach to dealing with the ritualists? Quite hard-nosed I would say. Um, they, They unfortunately as it turned out started prosecuting people yeah. in the law because it was illegal to wear vestments and exactly have candles and things like that and it was very clear i think there was a much clearer connection then than there is now but that if you were breaking canon law you were breaking the law because mm. it's an established church and there were trials and it was clearly established that certain vestments and certain rites and rituals were mm. against the law and so church association said well look, these people are all breaking the law mm. So the right thing to do is to have them arrested and charged and tried and prosecuted. Sent to prison. Now, they, they did win quite a number of the trials. It wasn't that they were unsuccessful in that policy, but unfortunately, there yes. were some unintended consequences of that yes. policy. Well, I think, if you there? get people sent to prison for doing something which really is not doesn't look harmful to the general public, um, so it you're... Um, actually what happens is they become martyrs and those who are looking on from outside who are not deeply involved in the arguments actually gain they gain sympathy exactly you you look completely unreasonable um you know completely um disproportionate Mm. response is what it seems and Ryle himself gets caught up in in a case like this he is he's pretty opposed to church association methods he doesn't think that's an appropriate way of doing it but actually when he's a bishop there is a case of somebody in his diocese who is um, doing a number of these things which are illegal and and Ryle's approach is to have a conversation with him which seems Mm. to me a, a much better approach and have a conversation and explain what the issues are and please ask him to refrain the vicar doesn't. He yeah. says, no, I'm not, I'm not going to change my mind. And Ryle's kind of, well, doesn't really want to do anything. And then somebody else decides to prosecute. Um, and Ryle then, as bishop, gets caught up in all of this. And, it, and the chap is arrested and, and is imprisoned. And everybody is blaming Ryle for this. And, and it's, it's not a great moment in his career. And, and no. it's not his fault, but it's also 
um, part of the the wider yes, struggle see, that is going on. Interesting that the um, the, the chap who was lighting the candles or whatever he was doing thought that that lighting candles was more important than his oath of canonical obedience to his bishop. So um, yes, there's a yeah interesting thing. I, I do think that the whole sort of um, setup with the evangelicals at that time, there were these that there were very, lots of different societies formed. They split. <laughs> they argued. They were. They, they debated. Um, the evangelical alliance was formed around. The same yes, time which is the thing I didn't. I didn't realise that the evangelical alliance had quite such a, a long history. And and Ryle again is interesting on this. I think he. It's not that he disapproves of it. He he has a great. Um, appreciation for the dissenters and and all that they have in common but he's very clear that he's an anglican yes he's a churchman yes as as they called it and he thought it was important for evangelicals who were anglican to be churchmen and to and for him that meant being involved in all the structures and processes and systems of okay. the Church of England. Which were developing at that time, the whole exactly. Church Congress, the sort of forerunners of Synod. Exactly. And and he thinks that people should really get stuck in. And, yeah. and he was also very innovative in, in saying that laity should be very involved. And he was yes. very, very keen for laity to participate and to be included. And he's got various, various points where he just says, we, we need laity in this organization mm. that organization the appointment of bishops yes and he he introduces this new um category of worker doesn't he which i've forgotten what they call they're basically evangelists oh, are they yeah, called they, evangelists? evangelists yeah yeah who are lay people who he appoints to to do evangelism to do yeah. ministry in his diocese yeah. and you know he he is working with the structures but also in some senses subverting those structures yeah. to enable him to do the work that he thinks is important yeah it was very it was very striking in this book actually as the sort of proposals that ryle was making sort of weren't presuming that the church of england had traditions of doing things of the way things were done yeah. and just looking back you know the way that people that the clergy were paid or the way that um Diocese were structured. I love the he talks about um, introducing clergy pensions, mm. and for him, the reason why you should introduce clergy pensions is so that when you've got clergy who are at that stage of life where they're old and tired and basically not really doing the job, so that they don't have to cling on in parishes, and it opens up the way to be able to put someone else in there who you know has got the energy and, and enthusiasm and the gospel to to proclaim and so he says so we must pension off the clergy so so that we can get more gospel work done <laughs> he, but he has this sort of there's a whole absolute rafts of ideas in the book generally listed in slightly tedious detail yes. about how he felt things should change in the church of england you know numbers of dioceses numbers mm. of bishops he he had a lot of sort of visionary ideas not of all not all of which actually happened but it was quite. It was encouraging to see that mm. uh, to remember that the Church of England can change structurally. I think that's right. And when you say not all of which actually happened, I mean that's true. But also there are quite a number of which didn't happen during his lifetime. It wasn't mm. that he managed to make all these things happen. But if you look now, sort of hundred, hundred and fifty years later, actually quite a lot of them have changed. Yeah. So lay involvement, for example, yeah. he talks about there should be lay involvement in appointments of clergy. There should be um, every vicar should have to have a lay council well we do now all have to have a pcc you know so there are a lot of things which did change and you you know you need someone to be the the first person to have the idea to have the vision but then recognize that change can you know can take time and i think 
one thing I think as evangelicals we're maybe a little bit too um, caught up in the institution is the institution and it's never going to change yeah and that's just not true no and I think that this is this book, reading this book has been a real reminder to me, actually, that the Church of England looked very different in its structures and operation in Ryle's time, 150 yeah. years ago. And there's no reason why it couldn't look better, yeah. different in in, in another hundred years time from yeah. now. And I don't think we have to feel if we haven't achieved all of the changes we'd like to see in our generation, as mm. if that's that's it, or even within the next five or ten years, that therefore we should just give up. I, I think... Mm -hmm. You know, there is a longer um, time scale to, it, to recognise. It's also a reminder of, of what people think about, uh, think is tradition, is actually not tradition. Mm. It's probably the last hundred years. So, you know, yeah. uh, candles on, on, on the table in church. Well, that's, that's a ritualist innovation that wasn't mm. happening in churches 150, 200 years ago. So there's these sort of... People think, oh, this is tradition. We're going to follow tradition, but they're not. They're just following something that's yes, um... exactly. All well, the traditions are much newer traditions yep. than we thought they were. And I think there's as well maybe a lesson here for those of us who are tempted to look on the Church of England and despair that it's just you know absolutely everything is as bad as it could possibly be, and nah. you know how could we ever manage to do any kind of gospel ministry in this situation because. When you look at, at what was going on then, it's kind of the same. Well, and they had, you know, they, it, it was still the era where people had these sort of sinecure jobs where they didn't, they never showed up, and mm. they were, or they were completely indolent um, in their parishes. And and one one of the things Ra was trying to do was to counter that. You know, you'd have a vicar, and he, he was never there, or he was out shooting mm. grouse or whatever, and mm. taking money mm. from the parish. Um, yeah, so yes, and these people renting pews in church. And, yeah, yeah. You and, know, just all kinds of... And, and, um, and the numbers of people, corruption. the percentage of people in church in Liverpool was, was only 10% or so. Well, um, it's it sort of, there's, there's tables showing you how that changes. Yes. It does increase, um, but not by masses. No, well, by, yes. I mean, there's not a huge, you know, Church of England in church in Liverpool was, I don't know, 10% or maybe by 1902 when yeah. Ra died, um, was, was 10%. Well, that's that's not a huge number of such a great city. So no. it, it's not like there was some golden era, the Victorian era, where well, all, everyone, everyone was, was going in to church. church yes. And we, we, we often tend to think that, you know, we've got these huge Victorian churches. We think they must have been full every Sunday. Well, even if they were full, that wasn't, didn't represent the entire population. Absolutely. So I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a sense in which... Um, having that perspective of history really helps us to put our current situation yeah. um in a in a more um reasonable light that actually things that's not to say things aren't difficult now and that there aren't challenges now and that the church of england isn't struggling now but also if you can say well do you know what it, it was ever thus. Yes, it w it was dire in in Ryle's yeah, time. I think that helps us to feel like that. Therefore, doesn't necessarily mean it's all going to collapse within the next few years. Yeah. The you know there have always been some at least faithful gospel ministers, yeah. um, but there have always been people who are not, and there've always been some structures which have suddenly opened up to let us do all kinds of great things and others which have seemed to frustrate um, yeah. gospel things. And I think 
you know, even with somebody like Ryle, who was, you know, a gospel man through and through, to recognise that having him as a bishop was not suddenly a it doesn't, panacea it to doesn't solve fix all... things. It's a that waits not for the bishop. Exactly. Isn't it? There's a wonderful article which maybe we'll put a link to from Andrew Atherston, who also has written about Ryle, and just pointing out that that even with the best person in the world, there are real limitations on what a bishop can actually achieve. And you know, the ref- the reformation of the church isn't going to happen by if we suddenly had great evangelical bishops in all of our dioceses. Actually, it needs to happen on the ground, in our parishes, um, and by the work pulpits, of the spirit, and by the work of the spirit. And you know, and I think I'm 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 really encouraged by that. I'm really encouraged by his focus on ministering to working class people, and I yeah. think that's a challenge for the church today. Mm. Think more about how we are doing that effectively. Um, I'm challenged by his constant wanting to see evangelicals working together yes. while recognising the problems that there were with that and that that never really got adequately resolved in it, his it lifetime. It was just very similar to, to, to struggles yeah. we've had today. To, exactly. To there were some people who were kind of bullish and wanting to, yes. you know, race in and do everything and, and like the church association, prosecute everybody and other people who were really cautious and not wanting to do things. And you know what? God built his church through all of that yes um and that's i think the great lesson from church history as a whole yeah um and and from this book and from the example of ryle um it's interesting that we start off by saying there's not very much in here about him as a person and there isn't and one reason for that i don't see any reason for that but one reason for that is there's not huge amounts i think of of material to go on on that Mm. because what's interesting about ryle isn't him as a person it is what God was able to do through him, yeah. faithfully ministering the gospel, wanting to see people come to Christ and, and doing whatever he could to make that happen. Yes, he, he, he was very keen that evangelicals uh, worked together. I'm sure there was never a period when union among evangelical members of the Church of England was so much needed, he oh. wrote way back in uh, 1854 yes um well and we might say the same today yes he was he was a visionary we could we can repeat many of his writings today so there we go so um i think we're we're glad we read that i think um you can tell that it was a phd thesis that has had some edges rubbed off i i would say and i feel like i say this a lot but i would really like christian publishers to to do more at encouraging people to write well and and i don't know that i would say this book is always written well no it's it's informative but it's uh, there were there were definite moments where i really yeah. slowed down you've really got to want to to read all of it but yeah. it is but if you're interested in finding out more about ryle and uh, absolutely and the 19th century church then then it is a, a place to start very exciting news we have our very first ever podcast listeners giveaway uh, we have a copy of the book, Attend a Lion, to give away to one of our uh, faithful listeners. You'll need to go to the blog post on the Church Society website, that's uh, churchsociety.org, and uh, fill in your email on the little uh, entry form there. We will be uh, picking a winner. You need to have entered by the end of Thursday this week, uh, and then we will pick a winner and announce it on next week's podcast. So if you're at all interested uh, in reading the book, and we would recommend it, 
um, then please enter the giveaway. As I say, I'll put on the blog post that goes with this podcast, I'll put some of the links to some of Ryle's own works that we've got on our um, website. There's um, even an audio book that we produced of of one of his things. So uh, you might be interested in listening to some of those as well. And if you've not read uh, Expository Thoughts or Holiness, go and read those. Read those rather than this. Expository Thoughts is is very cheap on Kindle and very accessible. They're very easy to get hold of and, and really, really worth it. Um, great so thank you Amanda um, I'm not sure when we'll be back with another book review podcast but uh, no doubt uh, before too long uh, thank you for listening as always to the podcast and we'll be back again next week Bye.